If you enjoyed the classic Dirty Rotten Scoundrels movie, have I got a story for you. Coming up on the Codex Cantina. <laughs> oh man, you even took my intro line. I'm just going to repeat it. I can't skip this. Welcome to the Codex Cantina where I am Una. And I am Wild Horses, coming to take you away, Crypto. (laughs) If you are new to the Codex Cantina, we go heavy into literature, bringing out some of the hidden meanings and deeper interpretations behind them. If you are down for literature discussions like that, please consider hitting the subscribe button. And as always, we start off with publication information. Today, we're going to be going over William Faulkner's famous Spotted Horses, published in Scribner's Magazine in 1931. We are going back to William Faulkner's famous Frenchman, Ben, full of of the southern hijinks and craziness that happens there. This is where Barn Burning and a couple other short stories came together in to create this book. So Barn Burning's a short story, Spotted Horses is a story. They came in and kind of became parts and chapters of the Hamlet, which eventually became the Snopes, Snopes trilogy, which is following the Snopes from their humble beginnings up to their rise of power, and it was pretty ruthless the way that they went about things. So this is focusing on Spotted Horses, which was originally released, as Crypto just mentioned, as a short story, was later expanded as a small novella, and is now part of the Hamlet which is a part of the Snopes trilogy. Is that clear as mud for publication info yet? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, if some people might look and have like a 12-page version versus a 60-page version, just make sure you know which one the teacher assigned in terms of <laughs> in terms of a breadth of what they cover. Yes, and I must thank you for giving me the right information on the class syllabus for this, so I did not read the wrong one. All right, so for themes, we're going to talk about greed and guts instincts, as well as letting go of mistakes today. And I think I love that one because I really think it comes down to sometimes you get conned and you just got to let it go. All right. So for a quick plot recap, Flem Snopes, a notorious con man who cares only about his own and a Texan named Buck show up with several dozen wild horses. The next day, the Texan auctions off the horses. X says he wouldn't buy anything he couldn't touch. The Texan (laughs) offers to give him a horse for free if he starts the bidding. A couple soon arrives, Henry Armistead and his wife, and win a horse in the auction as the townsfolk start bidding. It's the last of the Armistead's money as they hand it over to Flem. They are told that they can't get the horses until the bidding is complete, but Henry pushes forward anyways. Hmm, why wouldn't they let them get the horses? Can't imagine. (laughs) So when Henry goes in there, he is unable to capture the wild horses, and having sympathy for it being the last of the poor couple's dollars, the Texan agrees to get them their money back, and they'll have to go talk to Flem tomorrow. Well, later on, the door's kind of left open. We have some of the hijinks. It's a pretty fun scene with the horses kind of escaping, causing some damage around town, including the toll's uh, wagon, which kind of sets up the next section of this plot which is basically going to court so in court they find that the texan has fled with phlegm claiming to have given him the money the court finds the horse was never in the possession and he never got a bill of sale for the free horse which is kind of results in a funny exchange but basically everyone kind of gets screwed over except for phlegm which is kind of a it's an interesting this is this is very interesting story to me but it's even more interesting in the grander scheme of the Snopes trilogy. It's, it's, a, it's a very fun trilogy. If, if, if you're ever into more William Faulkner, I'd, I would definitely recommend it. And in that 
Faulkner way, really, you have to have more of, I think, the surrounding to appreciate the greatness of this story. All right. So for analysis, I love this quote. You folks can buy them critters if you want to, but me, I'd just as soon buy a tiger or a rattlesnake. And if Flem Snopes offered me either one of them, I would be afraid to touch it for fear it would turn out to be a painted dog or a piece of garden hose when I went to take possession of it. Love this characterization, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Faulkner's amazing here. You're already like, uh, I'm definitely not trusting this guy. Why would anybody else? <laughs> There's just some really good characterization of Flem because you'll notice that so, so this is painting Flem as the con man, right? There's several con men in the story in terms of the Texan and Flem and, and Ratliff. But what happens is you'll notice that even when, for example, when Henry's trying to catch his horse and remember his wife doesn't stop it and he gets mad at him, he literally assaults his wife right there in front of everyone. And what does everyone do? Nothing. Well, they look away. Yeah, they're all okay with it. They, do, they don't do anything. They look away because they don't want to step in, right? But yeah. also, Flem is the only one that keeps looking at them. So as the physical abuse is happening, he's the character that's looking right at it as everyone else is too embarrassed. I think that Faulkner's done a great job with Flem here because the characters, when you love to hate them, you know that they are written well. And when you read more of of the Snopes trilogy, the entire Snopes family is constantly compared to rodents, to these vermin that you want to get rid of, but you can't. And they literally just snake their way into power and do the dirtiest things. It's it's actually quite hysterical. It's really funny. Yeah, and you have kind of that old idea of the, the snake salesman here selling something that is not a real product and swindling the hard-earned money from people. Right, so if you're not sure what the snake oil salesman is, let's talk about that. That is an old trope with the idea that, I mean, it, there is some historical roots to an Asian water snake with snake oil you know, helping with inflammation and stuff. But it became a trope of someone pulling into town, selling you a miracle cure, which probably isn't going to work. And the idea is that they were a traveling wagon. They'd pull in and sell you, you know, wash this on your hands. And all of a sudden, all your pains from working out in the field all day go away. And they're traveling. So if you didn't buy it right then and there, you couldn't get any more of it. But also, if it didn't work, who are you going to complain to considering they're traveling and hit town out in the early morning so that way no one can complain to them or, or demand their money back, right? So they became these con men that would sell you fake products, products not as advertised, and, and to get your money. And they would do things such as plant people in the audience. So they'd have a member there pretending to be a townsman who would start the bidding and, and instantly pay the money. Because what does that do? That, in, that begins that mob mentality idea of, oh, well, well if he's getting it, I don't want to miss out on, on not having pains and being able to work harder and stuff. So more and more people would start buying into this miracle cure which probably won't work and they were master at performing for this and they would get up and they would have little stages and they would then portray oh i only have so many you know left by now because i'm going to run out and then they would have those people in the audience buy some and then get cured you know hearing loss or seeing or mm -hmm. somebody you know would walk up with a limp and take a drink of this miracle cure and then suddenly they don't have a limp anymore like all right i only have you know 10 bottles left and it's a you know a dime a bottle and they would sell out and then take their wagon on and of course it's just plain water or something and you know they scam these people out of their money 
or they bid against each other like eBay. Like this is just a great eBay scam to get people to start bidding against each other, which is exactly what they do in this like novella, right? They don't want to yeah. they don't want to bid on these horses. These are these are clearly unbroken horses that can't be trained or or would be really difficult to train. Literally there's the quote where X says, "I wouldn't buy nothing I was afraid to walk up and touch." Which is funny, right? Because he's like, "Those aren't worth any money. I can't touch them." He says, what if I give you one for free? And all of a sudden, he's like, two dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> free? Yeah. And then what does that do? The whole town then starts bidding the same way as when you have the actor and the snake oil salesman coming into town. What that's doing is it's it's the like um, supply and demand having their own greed and desire for something that may or may not even be obtainable having them pit against each other to start bidding and start using their own greed to attack their neighbor. It's actually quite brilliant the way that he kind of did this. In modern society, I guess I would explain this to maybe a younger generation. This is FOMO, their fear of not having whatever someone else has. Oh man, they have that miracle cure. I want that too. I got to have that. They, They have this fear of missing out of having the new it thing or the miracle cure drug really is. It's hilarious. We literally see Henry go through that. He arrives. He's like, you just gave that horse away for free? What's going on? Like, he starts pulling yep. out his last $5. His wife's like, no, that's our last $5. He's like, quiet woman. Yeah. I got I got to get these wild horses over here. Oh, but that's how convincing these guys were that people would be literally giving up their last $5 to have a piece of what everybody else is going to have. I mean, they're, they're geniuses at it. And Faulkner does a great job, I think, encapsulating that mentality from our country. So that kind of comes down to what do the horses represent in this story? What would you say? For me, the horses represent naivety, right? It it represents people's wanting desires for something that they might not necessarily need in their life. And they're being scammed out of their hard-earned money for this. And I think it's a lesson to be learned of if something looks like it's too good to be true or looks like something you need just because somebody else has it, then maybe you really don't need it. You need to get your priorities straight. I wonder how close we are. So what I wrote down was that I view this as the lottery ticket. You know it's not a chance, but you don't want to miss out on the chance, so you buy it, right? It's, it's some people call the lottery like the tax, a, a tax on stupidity or a tax on, on poor on math skills. Yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of like that same concept of this is feeding into that, that basic greed and desire that humans have and kind of plays off of that now i'm kind of curious to notice what did you think about the male versus the female presence from a greed perspective in the story so here it was kind of sad because the wife through much of the story is kind of the voice of reason here and the man has that you know i'll I'll take charge and i know what i'm doing and i'm gonna do it right this way that machismo attitude and then we see kind of it flip and reverse at the end a little bit of the story uh where she starts making the mistakes and he feels like he's the you know white knight hero coming in to save the day and fix things. Uh, it's very, very complex. And I think that Faulkner's doing a great job of showing both male and female's faults here. I feel like we saw unfettered greed from all the males, right? Flem stole the money straight up, right? The Texan was willing to go in on this deal, right? He brought the horses in with Flem and then Flem kind of disappeared because Flem's you know, Flum's got the um, reputation around town, right? So the Texan was just the front man, and he knew it. Ratliff, of course, if you read the rest of the Hamlet, he's he's kind of a con man, too. Uh, you have Henry, Eck, even. All of them demonstrated some form of greed coming out. 
But I noticed that the women didn't in this story, at least at least that I could tell. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir. Now, I have an interesting line here for you. When we meet Eula, who is Flem's wife, and she's described as very beautiful, right? Book ex- the, the subject of book three is, is basically her, where she kind of becomes kind of this Helen-like figure, right? She's gorgeous. Every man in town wants her. She is the last of 16 kids, and it is comparable, I feel like, to how Helen was married to Menelaus and was always kind of second fiddle to Agamemnon. Okay, I could see that. So we have this quote in here, and I have to bring up the, the, the Greek references here, or a particular fan of ours will call us out on it. To those <laughs> below, what Brunhild, what Rhine maiden, on what spurious river rock of paper mache, what Helen returned to what topless and shoddy Argos. So if you didn't know, Eula was kind of the, the beautiful figure that was being courted by men. And what happened to Helen, right? Helen was living living with, with Menelaus. She was courted by Paris, hauled off to war, right? Yeah. And then and then kind of comes back after it as if nothing happened, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Eula is the same way where she's being courted by these other men. I won't spoil what happens, but in comes Flem, her, her Paris, who carts her away to war as he goes off to Texas to steal all the, the horses and stuff like that. She's definitely, it's very interesting to see Faulkner use a Greek reference. He uses Greek references all the time, but in a very quick way, refers to her as Helen of Argos. You don't even have to read the rest of the Hamlet and you can already get the idea, oh, she must be really beautiful. She must be sought after. Helen was something that started a war. Did Eula start some of this? You know, and that's kind of what Flem did was he's using her, more of an upper class lady, to raise his own status. Uh, he's, he's just really a ruthless man, the way that he's depicted in the story and how he uses others, including the women in the story. Agreed. So do you think from perspective wise, is this a tragedy or a comedy? Ugh. This has got to be a comedy, yeah. man, because the pro- it's kind of like a <laughs> not, reverse- not if you're Henry. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's like a reverse comedy because yeah. the bad guy, it can't be a tragedy because the bad guy isn't, there's no catharsis for any of the bad stuff, right? There's yeah, no upcomings. Yeah. There's no upcomings to it. So normally in a comedy, you, it's usually more good versus evil. The good guy wins, the bad guy loses. But in this situation, the bad guy wins. And the good guy loses. But that's more of like an absolute moralistic good-bad that we apply to it. I would almost argue that maybe, particularly with the way that this story is, is this book is written, is I think Faulkner views Flem, he's he's the bad guy, don't get me wrong, but I think in Faulkner's mind, I think he likes Flem more than any other character, that it's his own kind of hero, the, the southern hijinks, the guy that's always taking a step ahead. I think he kind of... He, he's painting a very noble villain, if you will. I, I, can't, I can't figure out how to describe it. Oh, he's an anti-hero, for sure. And you really don't understand that Flem is the ultimate con man until the really end of the story. And you're like, whoa, wait. Because you almost miss it, right? You're like, he was the one that did it all? Oh, well, crap. I thought it was the Texan. Because that's how I took it the first time I read it. Well, you, it goes, and I think that's fine too, but it also goes back to how he was painted when he first walks in. Oh, here comes Flem. He, you know, I wouldn't buy anything from him. You know, a tiger or a rattlesnake is probably going to end up the painted dog or the garden hose, right? And there's even that quote where he says, 
at the end of the day, nothing under the sun's going to stop you from giving your money to him. And he walked away, right? So, okay, so, so the auction's coming up. Flem arrives with the Texan. Flem walks off. But Flem's never really disappeared. Even during the auction, Flem was in the background the whole time. Like he, I almost envisioned like this little marionette strings coming from Flem as he's orchestrating <laughs> this whole ordeal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I, while Flem was was he did disappear, and it's easy to to assume, you know, okay, well, Texan's a bad guy. Faulkner does a very brilliant job that maybe even on a second pass through that you see Flem is Flem's presence at least is in every scene, if not literally figuratively with his orchestrations of what's happening. I got it. Flem is Palpatine. He basically pal- he's Emperor Flemistine is what he is. <laughs> Emperor Flemistine. <laughs> That's awesome. We didn't really talk much about uh. the accepting the bad side of the con, but you know, really quickly, you realize everybody got screwed over except Flem, and everyone just quickly kind of like, ah, you know, gosh darn it, but they, they moved on, right? Life has to move on, and I think that's that's an important theme that we want to at least mention there real quick. Yeah, we, everybody gets scammed sometimes, and you have to just be like, all right, I got scammed, you know, it sucks, but it happened, I'm going to move on with my life and not dwell on it. I think that's where the end, like, Henry finally kind of realizes that. All right, let's move into our ratings. What are you going to give this one? Uh, I'm going to give this one a solid eight. Uh, again, you make me laugh. I'm going to love it. Uh, I think you did a great job. I love how uh, complex this story is. I love the idea of the con men and trying to learn from your mistakes of being, a, you know, scammed out of your money. And then, you know, it kind of takes two to tango here uh, with, with Henry and Flem and everything. So, yeah, I really like this story. Great job. Great yeah. job. So for me, I think I'm actually at the same rating. I, I'm going to give this one an eight. I think this is definitely on the more fun side of Faulkner, which is, as you know, one of my favorite sides of Faulkner. And uh, I think I think for this, the more of it you get, the the better it feels. So I have an unfortunate advantage of having read the rest of this book. And while it is made up of and comprised of various different short stories, it's clearly constructed very well from, from Faulkner's perspective to go together. So I uh, highly recommend that and stick around for perhaps the summer where we may have an announcement for a summer of Snopes, if you will. Of course we will. (laughs) All right, guys, thank you so much for checking out this video. If you are here as a part of the Faulkner certificate program, this marks our last video in the series. You can, we'll, we'll put the test, we'll put the test up soon for crypto to take it, but we thank you for joining us on this journey, spending a year of intense studies, looking into William Faulkner. Please consider hitting that subscribe button to join us on more literature adventures in the future. Una out. Peace.